Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Jay Kiesling, professor at UC Berkeley, to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's kick things off, Jay. We'd love if you can rewind the clock for us and share a bit of your background and career overview with our audience. Sure. Uh, so I was raised on a farm in Nebraska in a small town called Harvard, Nebraska. I went to the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, where I got my bachelor's degree in chemistry and biology. I really wanted some application to what I was doing. So rather than going into chemistry or biology for a PhD, I went into chemical engineering at the University of Michigan. And then when I left there, I went back to biochemistry, doing a postdoc at Stanford with Arthur Kornberg. And then after a year, came to Berkeley in 1992, and I've been here for 30 years. You got a Michigan and a Notre Dame guy on the line with you today. So I think you got a split fan base. But Two Michigans. Thanks for joining us, Jay. We love if you can connect the dots for us. What's been your North Star, if you will, throughout your career, so your common thread? Yeah, my research is engineering microbes to produce chemicals. And I trace it back all the way to when I was a kid, maybe a teenager, reading about the founding of Genentech. It was Newsweek or something like that. I remember reading about it and all of the applications that they were getting for positions at this company and how it was going to revolutionize medicine and a whole bunch of other fields because it was the really one of the first companies applying genetic engineering engineering to solve problems. And I thought, wow, that would be really fun and exciting to work in, manipulating life to, to try to solve global challenges. There weren't many examples of PhD scientists when I was a kid in Nebraska on the farm, especially. And the closest was, say, a medical doctor. And so when I went to the University of Nebraska to start my bachelor's degree, I thought I was going to go into medical school. And I got there and I got involved, first went out to a biological field station for a summer and then got involved in research and decided it was really something that I wanted to do. But I always came back to this idea of wanting to apply it to global challenges. And I don't know if it's because being from a farm, we tend to be very applied because you just have to get things done or if it's just a general bent I've had, but that's really what turned me to go to, to graduate school in chemical engineering is this idea of solving big challenges. And when I got to Berkeley, it was just when the area of metabolic engineering was starting out. And it was the idea that we could engineer microbes as chemical factories for natural products, for unnatural products, convert cheap things like sugar into more valuable molecules, and maybe at the same time, solve some big challenges. And it's pretty much been the story of the research that I've done, and that is engineering microbes to produce important molecules, 
early on, we worked on artemisinin, an anti-malarial drug, and that launched a company, Amaris, from it that then took our kind of feeble yeast that produces a little bit of artemisinic acid, and they made an industrial strength and scaled up the entire process and got it to Sanofi. And then we started working on biofuels and commodity chemicals. And now we're coming back to some of these pharmaceutical molecules. Recently, we published a paper on engineering yeast to produce the anti-cancer drug vinblastin. But it's just always been this idea of engineering the chemistry inside cells to solve some really big challenge that might impact people. Thanks for that overview. And we're excited to dive in further here to our first topic on SynBio. I'll pass it off to Drew to go forth. Thanks so much, Chas. And thanks again, Jay, for joining us on the podcast again. First of all, go blue, go bears. So excited to dive into our first topic here. And as a pioneer of this field, we'd love to understand more about the tools and platforms you developed to enable the advance in the design, test, build, iterate field of SynBio. But first, can you tell us more about the history of synthetic biology? I can tell you a little bit about it, but there's probably other people who've chronicled the history better than what maybe I can, I know, or can remember. You know, the term was coined many years before it became popular, really with this idea that we could do for biology what chemists have done with synthetic chemistry. And that is to use some basic tools and in their case, basic chemicals to produce complicated molecules. And the same thing can be true for biology, where you take some simple parts and put them together in novel ways to create novel function or complicated molecules. I first started working as an assistant professor on developing tools that would allow us to manipulate the chemistry inside the cell. And we didn't call it synthetic biology back then, but it was clear that's what we were doing. We were developing genetic tools that would allow us to control the levels of enzymes in a cell so that you wouldn't have one that was vastly overproduced and one that was a rate limiting step so that you'd have that balance so that the cell could still grow, but yet would produce your product. And all of this requires very fine tuning inside the cell. And so it wasn't until we started working on isoprenoids that we started applying these tools. But at least in my view, this, the area of synthetic biology goes back quite a ways. And in, in my own work, it goes back 30 years to when I first started the laboratory. In 2006, we brought together a group of folks, I would say that kind of the leading synthetic biologists in the US, maybe in the world, you could say, from Berkeley, UCSF, Stanford, Harvard, MIT, in the Synthetic Biology Engineering Research Center. And from that, a lot of interesting technologies were developed. A lot of great startups came out of that. And a lot of current synthetic biology faculty did their early training in Sinberg. You know, the field goes back uh, a ways. It depends on what you count as the start. Thanks so much, Jay. And taking things a step further, your application of these tools to the development of microorganism-produced artemisinin was game-changing. We'd love to hear your story in your own words. Could you share a few words on that? Sure. So as I mentioned, we were developing all these tools for engineering metabolism inside cells. And 
I didn't really have an application for them. We started on developing the tools and it was hard for people to understand why you would develop these tools if you don't have an interesting application to apply them to. And they were right. We really needed an application. So we started working on isoprenoids. They're a large family of natural products, probably the largest family of natural products. They include some really interesting molecules like Taxol, the $2 billion a year anti-cancer drug. They include carotenoids like beta carotene, which makes carrots yellow and yellow orange and lycopene, which makes tomatoes red. They also include flavors and fragrances, a whole number of other molecules. And so we started applying the tools to engineering isoprenoid metabolism, first in E. coli, and then eventually into Saccharomyces yeast. Um, and one day we were thinking about molecules and one of my graduate students brought me a paper on artemisinin and really amorphodine, the first committed intermediate in that biosynthetic pathway. And I knew about malaria because I had learned about that in college and microbiology, but I didn't really know about artemisinin. And we looked at this molecule and the fact that amorphodine came from a precursor, farnesyl pyrophosphate, that we were producing inside E. coli. We said, oh, we ought to be able to make this molecule. We just need the gene. And the person who described it wouldn't send it to us because they said at the time that we were competition. Luckily, there was a technology that had been recently developed by Pim Stemmer that allowed you to synthesize a gene from oligonucleotides. And so we could send out for oligonucleotides covering the entire gene in both the non-coding and the coding strand. We de designed those to have overlaps in them, and then you could assemble them using PCR. And all this was laid out in PIM's paper. And so we did that and we got a gene with a bunch of errors in it. And then we went through and corrected the errors and we got a gene and we placed it into E. coli. And lo and behold, we could produce amorphodine which was great. This first intermediate in the artemisinin biosynthetic pathway. We did some optimization of that, and then we published a paper on it in Nature Biotechnology. And this was 2003, I think. And paper was well-received in the community. And I got a couple of calls from pharmaceutical companies. And these are pharmaceutical companies that were producing artemisinin combination therapies for the developing world. They said, oh, we really read your paper. We really like the research. We'd like to have the organism. And I said, great, no problem. It's an important problem. We're happy to send it to you. I said, but just know that we're only producing amorphodine and artemisinin has several oxygens on it. You really have to oxidize the amorphodine to get to artemisinic acid before you can produce artemisinin. And the genes haven't been discovered. We're going to have to go into the plant and discover the genes. That's going to take research dollars. And there was a long pause at the end of the line. And then they said, we couldn't possibly fund your research on that. We don't make any money. Our board absolutely wouldn't allow us to do that. I was like, oh, okay. And then there was a kind of a click. And it was sad to me that here we have this disease. It's killing a million people a year. Most of them children under the age of five. But we've got a drug that's cure for malaria. We got a potential route to synthesize it in a low-cost manner. The price was high at the time because there was a lot of demand for it. And yet we can't get the money 
to build the pathway. I happened to meet someone, Victoria Hale, who had founded a nonprofit pharmaceutical called One World Health. And she knew folks at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation was not too old at that time. And through her contacts there, they encouraged us to, we wrote a pre-proposal, then they asked us to write a full proposal. And then, gosh, it must've been a year and a half later, we got a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for $42 million. And that allowed us then to really hire the staff to find the rest of the enzymes in the biosynthetic pathway. We founded Amaranth, one of my first startups based on the idea that they would take that microbe that we built in my lab and industrialize it. I was, I told you about this conversation with the pharmaceutical companies. I was a little bit leery about going back to them, even if we were successful in discovering the rest of the enzymes, the biosynthetic pathway and giving them this highly engineered bacterium or yeast. Pharmaceutical companies at that time were really good at synthetic chemistry. They could synthesize anything from basic starting materials. What they weren't so good at was synthetic biology. It's a nascent field. Pharmaceutical companies tended to be behind a little bit in, in kind of the bio areas and biopharmaceuticals. So I was reluctant to build something and then ship it off to them and hope for success. So that's why we started Amaris. And nine months into the project, we discovered the cytochrome P450 that oxidizes amorphodine and makes artemisinic acid. We had shifted over from E. coli to yeast in part because we knew there was a P450 there and that P450 was those Enzymes are, especially from plants, are a little tricky to express in bacteria. We got it to work in E. coli, but it worked much better in yeast. And so yeast was eventually chosen as the production platform. And it served us well for producing these molecules, these kinds of molecules, plant-derived natural products. Morris took that yeast that we had originally built for producing artificinic acid, and they made it much, much better. Got very high titers, rates and yields in the tank, and developed a purification process. Turns out the artemisinic acid was slightly toxic to the yeast. So it was pumped out of the cell by some natural transporters that yeast have to transport out molecules that might not want inside it, which actually aided in the purification. The artemisinic acid, when Amherst produced it in high titer, it, it actually crystallized in fermentation broth. There were just so many things that went right in that. And then we developed a call for proposals and asked pharmaceutical companies then with a developed process to come in and, and license the process. And Sanofi won that and we licensed the process to them. They built a production facility. They So let me back up just a minute here. So the yeast would produce artemisinic acid, but not artemisinin. A couple of reasons. One, artemisinin is toxic to yeast. I think you could produce it in yeast, but you'd need some tricks to do that. Second, there's still to this date been no enzyme discovered that converts artemisinic acid into artemisinin. So we didn't have that as well. So Sanofi developed a process. The yeast would be grown in a contract manufacturer or CMO. And then that contract manufacturer would ship them the artemisinic acid. 
And then they used a light catalyzed process to convert the artemisinic acid into artemisinin. And that was based on, number one, anecdotal evidence that in the plant, in the leaves that are been exposed to sunlight the longest, they have more artemisinin than artemisinic acid. And in the youngest leaves, it's just the opposite, more artemisinic acid than artemisinin. And, and two, based on some literature showing that an, a light catalyzed process will work. You can use other processes. There's metal catalysts that will do it as well, but this worked very well. And then they produced millions of treatments and shipped them off to Africa. The process right now is idle because the price of artemisinin as it comes out of the plant, produced by plants, is extremely low. And that's actually fine by me. Our goal was really to drop the price and make artemisinin widely available for people in the developing world who need it. That process is waiting to go. When the price of the plant-derived molecule goes high, we can bring the process out, the microbe out from the freezer and scale it and produce the artemisinin so we can keep the price low and the availability high. That is wildly fascinating being able to hear this background in your own words and the collaborations with pharmaceuticals with Amaris and it's just phenomenal. Thank you so much, Jay. And, and as we think about the success of artemisinin production and consider the ever increasing number of therapeutics becoming available, can you tell us more about your current work to help produce natural product pharmaceuticals? Yeah, we just published a paper in Nature a few weeks ago where we demonstrated production of vinblastin in Saccharomyces. And this is, was done in my labs at the Center for Biosustainability in the Danish Technical University in Copenhagen. And it was the culmination, that paper is a culmination of seven years of work. And I told you about artemisinin, we needed, or artemisinic acid production, we needed a terpene cyclase and then a P450 to get to artemisinic acid. And then you go to something like vinblastin, where we had 30 enzyme reactions beyond geronyl pyrophosphate, 28 more than are in the artemisinin biosynthetic pathway. We had one P450 in the artemisinin biosynthetic pathway. We've got seven in the vinblastin biosynthetic pathway. It's just orders of magnitude more complicated than what we did with artemisinin. And that really demonstrates the power of synthetic biology and how far it's come in, you know, we published the artemisinic acid paper in 2006. We're talking about a decade and a half and the technologies come a long way. And people like Christina Smokey have published work on morphine production. Again, some really super complicated biosynthetic pathways. You know, the field has, has expanded enormously in that time. Also, there are other interesting molecules that one can produce. We also published a paper a few weeks ago on polyketide synthase that produces a polycyclopropane fatty acid. It's got multiple cyclopropanes in it, and it's reminiscent of a rocket fuel that the Soviets used to power the Soyuz spacecraft rockets. And they quit using it because it was really toxic for them to synthesize it. They synthesized it chemically at some factories in the Ukraine, which were really toxic if they shut those down in, in Ukraine. But we're able to do that with biology, produce 
molecules with these highly energetic cyclopropane rings in it. And I don't know where that's going to go. We're going to try and make fuels that could substitute for jet fuel, for rocket fuel, et cetera. But I think it really points to the power of biology to do really complicated and interesting chemistry and chemistry that is, is really challenging to do any other way than through biology. As I look at my own research going forward and the research of many others in this exciting field, I think we really have to think about the things that biology can do uniquely well. And it's not just about the academic science, it's also about the commercialization because biology trying to produce the same molecules that you can get from petroleum just isn't going to compete. And for companies, that's just not a good business model unless there's some other driver, like a law saying that thou shalt not put any more carbon in the atmosphere or that you have to have a certain amount of green renewability in any of your products. But short of that, biology can't compete. So it has to compete on the things that it can do uniquely well. And part of that is producing unique molecules that would be impossible or nearly impossible to get from chemistry, or at least economically impossible to get from chemistry, using chemistry. And so, yeah, that's where I see the area going and it's where I see my own work going. Yeah, I love the overview of the area as you're describing the development of symbio applications and even the shout outs to fellow colleagues like Christina Smokey at Stanford. I mean, it's just wildly fascinating to hear from your own words. And, and now continuing on that thread, broadening the scope of potential application, we'd love to understand what excites you in, in terms of symbio applications to biopharma today. Yeah, I, that, there are a whole range of really interesting natural products out there that are going to have activities that we don't know about necessarily. We're working on a really exciting project with a pharmaceutical company that I can't really talk about right now, but hopefully I'll be able to talk about it in, in a few months. But I'm super excited about that project. And then tuning the chemistry inside the cell to produce unnatural or new to nature molecules. I think there's huge potential there. If you look at the pharma molecules that are out there, not too many of them are exact natural products as they were produced in the plant. They might have some variation on it, either small or significant variation. And you could maybe get that variation by synthesizing that molecule using chemistry, but might, maybe that molecule is too difficult to synthesize using chemistry. And so maybe you'll put a handle on it and then do some combination of biosynthesis and chemical synthesis or feed an unnatural precursor and get it to, to move through the metabolic pathway. But I think this idea of being able to change the chemistry inside the cell to produce some of these unnatural molecules is, is really exciting. I have a collaboration with John Hartwig, who's a professor in chemistry at Berkeley. And his group has really worked on, in this case, P450s with unnatural hemes in them that are able to do new chemistry. And what we've done with him and published this recently was to put that chemistry inside the cell. Now, imagine that you can couple that with natural product biosynthesis. So you might synthesize the core of a natural product, but then use one of these unnatural P450s to put some completely new chemistry, hang some new chemistry 
off of that natural molecule. I'll, the Nobel Prize was given just a week ago for click chemistry, and Carolyn Bertozzi did click chemistry inside the cell. Imagine now that you could produce the precursor, do that to click chemistry, and either add another chemical to do the click chemistry that would be transported into the cell that would do the chemistry inside the cell, or maybe you can produce both precursors inside the cell and then click them together later. So I really think that biology and metabolic engineering are moving to start to produce these unnatural molecules that, that might be better therapeutics than the natural molecules themselves. Yeah, thank you so much, Jay. And you mentioned earlier your use and involvement in biofuels. I want to move us to our next topic here, speaking roughly on metabolic engineering for industrial applications in the Joint Bioenergy Institute. In recent years, your lab's primary focus has been the metabolic engineering of microorganisms for the production of commodity and specialty chemicals and biofuels. As we think about renewable energy, biofuels have been an area of considerable interest. For, for those who may be less familiar, can you provide a brief overview of drop-in biofuels? Yeah, so currently we have ethanol that's produced from corn in the US. And that ethanol is added to gasoline as an oxygenate. And we get most of our, our fuel in the US has about 10% ethanol in it. There's a blend wall, which basically means you can't go above 10%. You could go above 10% realistically, but because of seals in the engine, you have to have a special engine, a flex fuel engine, basically, to allow you to use more than, say, 10 or 15% ethanol. But in theory, we could use ethanol all the way up to 100%. So then you've got 90% of the fuel is still coming from petroleum, even though 10% comes from ethanol and from corn. You got 90% from petroleum and you're putting all that extra carbon in the atmosphere. And so the question then is, could we produce some of the other molecules that you get in petroleum-based fuels using biology and produce them from renewable sugars like cellulosic biomass? And it's a fantastic goal because that means that we could potentially have a fuel in our tanks that's carbon neutral because you're producing it from sugar that is produced from carbon dioxide and sunlight. And then when you burn that fuel, you're returning the carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere. So carbon neutral fuels, sounds fantastic. Our challenge is the competition with the price of petroleum. The Even now in California, we've got gas that's between six and $7 a gallon, seems super high. But that's still really low relative to most of the world. And it's really low compared to what you might be able to produce biofuel for. Now, we have hopes that we can get the price of biofuels down by using all parts of the plant, not just the sugars that are in the plant, but also the lignin in the plant. And I definitely think that's going to be possible. Practically, that means that we need probably a stable price 
for that fuel. And that's a bit of a challenge because the, the president and everyone else would like a fuel to be have a low price so that inflation goes down. And it, but that's counter, say, to making biofuels affordable. And it's counter to getting to people to conserve the amount of fuel that they use so that we don't put so much carbon in the atmosphere. So we either need some kind of price supports, we need a, a tax on carbon, or we need regulation. And you're starting to see regulation happen in uh, many places. California says there are not going to be any more combustion engine cars, new cars sold in California after 2035. Other states are following suit, but that doesn't say anything about airplanes. There's some regulations in the EU about planes needing renewable fuels, but we aren't there yet. But some companies are making headway on this. I have high hopes, but again, we're going to need regulation and the government to step in and say, yeah, climate change is important. These biofuels have to be able to compete with the petroleum-based fuels. Otherwise, companies aren't going to be able to make money and we're not going to have those fuels. So it's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge. But the science is there. The science has shown we can produce these kinds of molecules. It's the policy that we're waiting to get, for it to catch up. I really love your overview on the political and economic state of biofuels. And we at BIOS currently are excited to see the development and the growth of your lab and how you're continuously pursuing more sustainable biofuels. But, you know, in addition to your academic posts, you are also the co-founder and CEO of the Joint Bioenergy Institute, JBEI, dedicated to developing advanced biofuels, liquid fuels derived from solar energy stored in plant biomass that can replace gasoline, diesel fuel, and jet fuels. Can you tell us more about the JBEI? Yeah, so um, we started JB in 2007 with a grant from the Department of Energy. They've been very generous, given us $25 million a year, and that's continued. We just got renewed. In fact, we started our new cycle just uh, about a little under two weeks ago for another five years, and we're very excited about that. We have brought together researchers in plant engineering and agronomy in uh, deconstruction, how you tear plants apart and extract the sugars and aromatics from them, uh, in microbial engineering to convert the sugars and aromatics into biofuels and bioproducts. We also have a, a very strong team that develops technologies to enable the science and a team that does techno-economic and life cycle analysis to make sure that we're choosing the science to do that's going to have the biggest impact on commercializing biofuels and doing the basic science that will enable biofuels and bioproducts going forward. And we've got many of our researchers, most of our researchers located in Emeryville, just right next door to Berkeley. And then we've got researchers spread out all over the country that are equally important to those that are in Emeryville and that are doing complementary research. So it's multi-laboratory, multi-university campus, basic science research center, but devoted to this idea of really transforming biomass into biofuels and bioproducts. And I've been fortunate to be able to lead this fantastic team over the last 15 years. That's amazing, Jay. And I want to quickly switch over to our next topic here around translating SynBio. Over the course of your career, 
you founded 10 companies, Amris, LS9, Ligos, Ansabio, uh, amongst many others. We'd love your thoughts on what foundational symbiotechnologies are needed to drive this movement forward. That's a great question. Let's take ANSA Biosciences just as, as an example. The company was founded on a technology that the co-founders developed in my laboratory on long DNA synthesis and enzymatic rather than solid phase. And that's a core technology that we really need if we're going to have inexpensive DNA and high quality long DNA, which we need for any particular enzyme we might want to produce inside a cell and particularly for long metabolic pathways. They're going to require a huge amount of DNA. So that there's a core technology, I think, that that is at the basis of the entire industry. The, the speeding up the design, build, test, learn cycle for synthetic biology is absolutely essential. And I think this is something that Amaris has really done extremely well. I think they have probably the best biofoundry for engineering yeast of any company, any academic institute, anyone, period. And that has served them well because that means that they can, from idea of a molecule to large-scale production, takes them, I've heard, on the order of six months. I don't know. It's on that order, whereas that used to take years to accomplish. And many other companies have developed technologies in this area. One thing I'm a little bit concerned about is that there's not a lot of sharing going on of some of these technologies. And so as a result, I think academics are a little bit left out. There are a lot of academic foundries out there. I don't know if they're as good or as effective as the ones in companies. So I would say developing and sharing these core technologies that help design, build, test, learn, which includes, you know, automation, uh, includes liquid handling robots, or even better microfluidics. It includes, in particular, analytics. So that's another example. I'd say a third example are technologies that will enable scale-up. And there, there have been a lot of examples out there where companies and academics have engineered a microbe that can produce a product well at small scale, and then they go to a large scale facility and it fails. And Amherst had one of these early on. And so they happen to the best of companies. We need technologies that will enable rapid scale-up and very reproducible scale-up and lower kind of the failure rate of scale-up because in the end, it's about getting the products out. And I would say finally, and this is not really a SynBio technology, but uh, we have to think more about downstream processing because maybe you can produce a lot of a molecule, but how do you purify it so that it becomes useful? If you're, you're going to uh, use it as a pharmaceutical, it has to be very pure. If you're going to use it to produce, say, a polymer, it has to be very pure. And we need to think more about how we couple downstream processing with the upstream engineering so that maybe you're choosing an organism that is benefits the downstream processing and makes it easier. And so we need a bigger view of the entire process rather than just looking at the engineering of, of an organism in a silo. 
I love your focus on how we can improve the current process today. And with the background in your companies that you've built and generated at the company level, what key principles do you believe are necessary for a SynBio company to achieve success? That's the multi-billion dollar question right now. The SynBio, the science and technology often works. It may take longer. They may run into hiccups but it often works. I'd say one of the biggest issues and problems is the market. Making sure that the market wants the product that you can produce and think you can produce. There are many examples out there where a company produced a product and then it didn't get traction in the marketplace. And Zymergen's a recent example of this and no criticism of them there. Hindsight is 2020, and but I think this is a big issue facing the synthetic biology community right now. And that is making sure that we're producing products that that the marketplace really wants because that's how these companies are going to survive. They've got to be able to sell the product and make money. And I would say that's an area that's really lacking right now. And it's a hard one. And I'll just give you an example. We'll sit in a room here at JBay with, you know, we got our, our hardcore biochemists here at JBay, and maybe we'll bring a company in that's a chemistry company. And the chemistry company might not be aware of what we can do with biology. And the biologists don't necessarily know what to produce. And we have this conversation that goes something like, what should we produce? What can you produce? And it goes back and forth like that. And so there's this mismatch in what the biology can do and what's needed. And it isn't just about having the right people in the room. It's doing the careful market analysis. And in many cases, it's coming up with entirely new products that have never hit the marketplace before and trying to understand if those will get traction. Um, yeah, I'd say that was that's one of the biggest challenges that we face right now. Thanks so much, Jay. It's amazing to hear that quick dive into scale and building of the actual current companies and what kind of needs to happen overall. I think we wanted to dive in quickly again about the more economical and political questions uh, that, that you kind of brought up previously earlier in the episode. Um, and so, you know, with current events, you know, how will President Biden's National Biotech and Biomanufacturing Initiative kind of help enable these efforts that you're speaking of in entrepreneurship and company building? First of all, it's going to get companies and people thinking about buying products that are made through biology and that are renewable. So I think that awareness is a great thing. And whenever you have the president saying something, it gets attention. I think the second thing is facilities, scale-up facilities, I think are going to be extremely important and test facilities that we can you know, test out different processes to do the scale up, I think are super important as well. And we haven't had enough of these in the US. And the ones we have, I think, are maybe behind what they have in Europe. For example, many of the companies that I've been affiliated with or started use either scale up facilities, contract manufacturers in Europe rather than in the US. And it's just because there are more of them available. 
And then I think money for basic research in this area. We need to continue to do work in this area. That And that basic science then feeds into the development of companies, startups, and then scale-up of processes that will produce these biologically created molecules. Thanks so much, Jay. And expanding on your entrepreneurial efforts, more to focus on people now. Throughout your career, you've been a huge proponent of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the sciences. And you built your lab at JBay to reflect that. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how to better incorporate DE&I into team and company building. Well, first of all, it's important to have a diverse laboratory, a diverse company, because you want to get all ideas on the table because you, you want to be successful. And when you have a diverse workforce, you bring in a diverse set of ideas. And I think that's essential for success. And when you're making a product and you're going to get it out to a diverse set of buyers. You want to have a product that will appeal. Diversity in companies, diversity in research is absolutely critical. I think, so we have to operate at all levels to get diversity in. And that means that we have to make sure that job ads go out to as diverse a pool as possible. We have to have as diverse a group of interviewers as we can. We have to make sure that we, when we invite people in for interviews, that we've invited a diverse group of interviewees. But it's not just about that. It's also about education and getting more people in the pipeline. And we need to do this at all levels of education, at the postdoc level, at the graduate student level, at the undergraduate level, and even down to the high school level and K-12. And this is an area that we've been operating in here at JBay for the last few years. We had a program where we bring in about a 10 stu- high school students every summer. And we pick them from around the Bay Area. We tend to pick students that have been that are in families where they might be the first ones who will go to college or have the potential to go to college. We don't just pick the best students. We pick the ones where we might have the biggest impact. And we get this really diverse set of students in, and we've had really great success. 97% of them end up going to college, and 80% end up in a STEM program, a STEM major in college. And that, if you compare it to the average for the demographic we're looking at, it's far higher in terms of the number that are choosing to go to college and the percentage that are choosing STEM as a career. So. That's great because that means in a few years, those folks are going to, they're going to go to college. Some of the people that first went through our program have gone on to graduate school and gotten through graduate school. So those kinds of things are having a positive impact. Now that's an enormous, a tiny pool compared to the whole US or the planet, but we've got to start somewhere. And I think that education is a prime place because what a lot of companies find is that for certain jobs, certain disciplines, it's not very diverse at all. And it's extremely difficult for them to have a diverse pool of candidates to choose from. And so we've got to, we've got to 
push more candidates, and I don't mean push, force them, but we've got to we've got to fill the pipeline of people who are coming through the educational system, make it as diverse as possible, so we have a pipeline of people, and then we have also got to work on the poll, and that is having diverse interview committees, having a diverse pool of candidates to choose from, all of those things to make sure that we get more diversity in the workplace and in our educational system. I love to see that your impact not only in health and sustainability also goes to people and fascinating to see that the impact has already been seen by yourself and so many students that you've mentored in the past. And one thing for me personally that I've been inspired and have loved to see thought leadership and press around yourself has been the support around LGBTQ scientists in particular. What can we do to further support and mentor the next generation of LGBTQ scientists? I have an interesting story about that. A few years ago, I did a Nova special and it took a long time for it to come out. And it was because they were concerned about outing me on television because they hadn't done it on Nova before. And so they debated back and forth and finally it came out and they outed me on, and it was great. And what was so interesting to me as program came out at 9 p.m. on the East Coast, then 9 p.m. Central, then 9 p.m. Mountain, then 9 p.m. Pacific. And I saw the emails come into my email box as it moved across the country and people who said, they were so happy to see that because they had been discriminated because they were gay or lesbian or transgender and how it, what a bad experience they had and how happy they were to see this. And I just saw that wave come across the country and it, you know, I knew it was important from my own personal experience, but seeing that and seeing the impact that even something as tiny as that can have on a community, it just it made me realize that we need more role models out there. And I know you were talking to Carolyn Bertozzi uh, recently, and, and she and I have often been on the stage together talking about LGBTQ scientists and two LGBTQ scientists and, and you know the challenges, but also what we can do to get more in the pipeline and to be more supportive. And she's been amazing at this. And I'm just so excited that she won the Nobel Prize in chemistry because it just, it sets a huge example. And, you know, I think people who are out need to be more in the press, need to be more visible because that will make it comfortable for everyone else. It's by example. Amazing example that you set yourself, Jay. Thank you so much for sharing that and being able to chat through some amazing topics through entrepreneurship and through economics and politics. And just as we're wrapping up things here, I just want to pass it over to Chaz for a few rapid fire questions. Thanks, Drew. And, and Jay, before we come to a close here, a couple of things to wrap up. One question that we love to ask our guests comes from Nobel laureate Dennis Gabor. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, inventing the future to me is developing all new kinds of bioprocesses that will produce chemicals or biomaterials that could uh, be much better for the planet than what we have now. 
And as we talk about the future that awaits us, let's also maybe dive into some of the challenges. What would you say are the grand challenges facing SynBio? Well, one is public acceptance. I'd say that's a huge challenge and one that we have to be very mindful of because everything could be undone by regulations or it could make it so cumbersome that we can't operate. You know, other grand challenges for SynBio are, I think, what I talked about before, making sure that your product is needed by the marketplace and that the marketplace is willing to pay what you can produce your product for so that you can make some profit. And then there's a whole slew of interesting and challenging uh, science that needs to be done. As we flash forward and hopefully build on these challenges that you described and realize this vision, maybe give ourselves some lead time to do as you look to what maybe SynBio will be in 2050. Can you share with us a vision for that landscape? Where will we be? <laughs> Where will we be? Um, we'll be uh, engineering microbes de novo for chemical processes. We will have custom-built plants for producing various feedstocks, for producing uh, high-quality food, plants that don't need nitrogen at all that self-fertilize, maybe plants that don't need hardly any water, and that suck a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We might have uh, computers that, that are biological in nature rather than silicon-based. We'll have conquered cancer once and for all and made it a thing of the past and have vaccines for nearly any, any virus or for bacterial infections. Should I go on? <laughs> I very much am looking forward to that future. What else do we have in store, Jay? Uh, uh, we won't be using petroleum anymore. Uh, we'll be uh, using uh, biomass as a source for most of the chemicals that we use. We won't be using plastics anymore, at least the plastics that aren't compostable or biodegradable or readily recyclable. We'll only be using those that won't have an impact on the environment or that'll have minimal impact on the environment. Exciting times awaits us. Uh, looking forward to that future and hope that it's ever soon. Uh, yep. To help wrap a bow around this amazing episode, any closing thoughts you'd love to share with our audience? I'm just super excited about the prospects in uh, engineering biology as we go forward. I think there's so much uh, that can be done. We've come so far in a couple of decades. I can't imagine how, in some ways I can't imagine where we're going to be, say, in another couple of decades. But I'll be fascinated to be part of that and to be watching some of the rising stars in this field. We've touched on a lot of fun topics today and many ventures over the course of your career. How can our audience learn more about your work, Jay? Well, they can go to our website. They can uh, read our Papers is probably the the best place to to see some of the work we've done and um, some of the work that we're currently doing will sh shortly be out in the literature. Terrific! Thank you for an absolutely fantastic episode. We're incredibly grateful for your time and looking forward to having you back on the show soon. Thanks again, Jay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.